Welcome to Towards Health and Each One Podcast. We're so excited to be talking about It's a Small World, Understanding the Universe of HCP Thought Leaders. I'm Elizabeth Fennell with H1, and our guests today are Christine Medeiros and Nyanika Banjari, Banerjee, sorry, Nyanika, and they are with our strategic solutions team at H1. So we're going to be talking a little bit about traditional key opinion leaders for pharma and life sciences. Um, they've both had a stronghold of influence in their respective therapeutic areas. However, instead of at congresses or medical journals, sometimes we can find them online or on your phone, tweeting the latest research or findings through social media or channels like Twitter, where they can reach a broader audience. So these two types of influencers are critical for medical affairs and field MSLs to understand and engage. However, the approach may be different. And that's why we have Chris and Ionica here today to talk about that. So welcome, both of you. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So let's start with um, each of you telling me a little bit about your background in the industry. Nyanika, why don't we start with you? Sure, yeah. So I have been um, a consultant in the space. I actually started off as a biotech engineer. So used to work a little bit on the research, clinical side of things, worked in IVF, um, worked in uh, phase three trial research for oncology, a um, bunch of stuff, and then really uh, wanted to focus more on sort of the pharma, um, you know, strategy side. However, I did start with uh, compliance in pharma. Actually, so prior to H1, I was with IQVIA doing compliance consulting, which again was um, you know, very interesting to me because I didn't have the background, but again, because I was more from the consulting world, it really helped me understand a lot of those regulations that the, the pharma industry kind of right works within. Um, but then that was also very much you know operational strategy, and then really at H1, I got to focus on what my personal um, you know area of expertise is, which is kind of combining some of that biotech medical knowledge with um, you know pharma sort of strategy. So um, yeah, that, that's a little bit about what I did. Awesome. What about you, Chris? Yeah, thanks. So uh, I I come to H1 by way of industry. So I'm a bit of an industry vet. I have spent a little over 20 years in the biopharma industry, working for large biotech companies, and in some cases, some small boutique startup biotech companies. Um, and I've served in a number of different and really diverse roles on purpose. So I, I should tell you that I started out my career many moons ago, carrying a bag on the commercial side for about 15 years. I, I served in the sales organizations of, of the companies where I worked um, and I covered so many different disease states and really sort of you know, cut my teeth, if you will, um, in the oncology space and other, other types of primary care related roles um, when I first started, you know, kind of understanding uh, so much about drug development and then you know, the commercialization and the go-to-market strategy uh, that's involved. And at some point, I kind of got a hankering to do more. You know, there's, there's more that I wanted to do. And I really wanted to better understand how the engine runs. So at about that, that 15 year point, I went in building, as they say, and I began to serve in, in a number of different internal roles from, from training entire commercial organizations to, uh, you know, leading on product teams and, and going ahead and, and working actually in in one piece. And I really did this kind of work because I wanted to understand 
not only how droids were developed and the different roles that people played to move that engine forward, um, but I also wanted to understand the interplay between these teams. And I had a great mentor who at one point said, kid, you know, whenever you get an opportunity, when someone taps you on the shoulder, I don't care if you've been in that role for a year, take it. Go learn as much as you can about all of these different functions, be it operations or marketing or sales training. And I, I my last roles within industry uh, really had me serving in stakeholder relations, which was a very unique role. Um, and I worked for, um, you know, the person I kind of feel like is the guru of, of uh, it medical expert engagement and really taught us the ropes of, of strategic engagement with experts. And so I, I spent the better part of the last five years in industry uh, leading global um, global stakeholder relations uh, functions for, for therapeutic areas and primarily focused in the oncology space. And what that had me doing was helping our medical executives, because we sat in gray space in this kind of a role, helping our medical executives connect to the right thought partners by way of medical experts to help move forward their business objectives and, and sort of support their KPIs with discussions um, and potential collaboration talks with experts. So um, it, it really, it, it was really kind of a neat experience. These were global experiences and we were touching expert um, expert uh, voices from around the world um, and really trying to help those strategies move forward. And I love that work. And so it really kind of set me up for the kind of very unique work we hear, we do here at the, the H1 Solutions team. That's awesome. And, and you both have really deep experience. So when we think about the term digital opinion leader, when did you first hear that term and what did it mean to you? I can go if you want me to, to sure. talk. I think it was probably around... 2019, to be honest with you, where that term first started to crystallize um, and I started to hear it batted around, but that came long after the concept anyway of um, omni-channel, which you started, you started hearing about that maybe eight, 10 years ago. And, and I think it's important to talk about omni-channel as it relates to digital, because omni-channel is that effort by by organizations in, in pharma and even outside of pharma. There are companies that are trying to engage in omni-channel strategies. But um, within the context of what we're talking about, you know, this started this idea of omni-channel started being batted around when digital channels woke up, if you will. And there was a realization that we had an opportunity to connect with customers, not only in person by way of medical affairs teams and commercial sales teams, um, and also at congresses, but we could also connect with them through social media and through non-personal promotion, all kinds of other channels that became trackable, which was fascinating. You know, you can't necessarily track how often a KOL or another HCP reflects back on the conversation that you have with them live, but you can track how many times that expert engages with digital content or how often they click through to something or they come back to it or how often they tweet something or retweet something. So not only did this digital space sort of open up all these different channels, it opened up a new capacity, a new capability to monitor, to track, to then aggregate trends and do all of this. And so I think for me, um, you know, the, the term digital opinion leader came long after when you started to see people develop, if you will, a kind of side hustle outside of their clinical practice or their research 
uh, efforts and start really getting out there and being active communicating in these spaces. And so that's when I heard of it. How about you, Nyanika? Did you, did you have a certain point or a moment in time? Yeah, I do think it's interesting because for me, when I was at, you know, prior to each one, I used to be out in the field a lot doing like compliance monitoring work. So I used to actually, you know, do field rides with like MSLs, sales reps. Um, and back then, like pre-COVID, and I agree, first of all, I, I kind of started hearing it around, you know, 2019, 2020, when especially COVID hit, right? And I think um, the industry as a whole, I always say this, I feel like we were anyway heading right towards this direction, but COVID really accelerated how quickly we started engaging, right, with KOLs through digital platforms. And that's where I think the term DOLs kind of started cropping up. Um, so yeah, I started hearing it around then, but it was interesting because I started monitoring a lot of these virtual speaker programs, right? Where, you know, clients were really, you know, engaging advisory boards and like all sorts of speaker programs virtually. And that's when we started seeing some of these doctors who were great in real life in podiums, right, in actual speaker events. Um, and by grade eight, their skill sets, right, they were suited for that, but also they preferred that. Um, we saw that, you know, they weren't as comfortable or they weren't as into <laughs> the whole digital um you know, speaker programs and adboards and stuff. So that's where I think pharma realized and even KOLs on their end started realizing that, hey, how many of us are even, you know, open to engaging through more of these newer platforms? Because some aren't. Like even today we see, you know, a lot of those true traditional KOLs aren't the ones who are going to be a lot of your current like DOLs. They're just not interested. They prefer other, but then there are some who have kind of adopted right, and adapted to the newer way of things. So yeah, short answers, I started hearing it around 2019 when we started seeing a lot more of these virtual, you know, engagement. Um, you spoke about, you know, omni-channels, all, all sorts of things. Um, so I think, yeah, DOLs really became a thing in the past um, two to three years. Do you, think, <clears throat> do you think it's gotten more sophisticated as far as how they engage through yeah. channels? Have you seen that, that evolve? Definitely. I, I remember when I started, and again, during COVID, right? We used to see all my clients were so confused, even from a compliance perspective, then they were like, hey, we don't know, there are no regulations around this. We don't know how much we pay them. You know, how are we supposed to engage with them? What are the controls? How are we monitoring these programs in terms of how we're conducting them? There were a lot of risks, right? In terms of what kind of information is going out there. I mean, there was a point I know my clients were like, hey, my reps are like texting these people random things. And, and we were like, I don't know if this is you know, legit. So I would say, a, from an overall industry regulation perspective, there's a lot more clarity, there's a lot more guidance, but also from a medical strategy perspective, I just feel initially people straight up thought that, oh, we're just going to switch, you know, to conducting the same things the same mm -hmm. way, but through digital platforms. And soon they realize that's not as effective. There are a lot more, you need to approach it differently, yeah. right? This is going to be a different mode of interaction, a mode of delivery, a mode of communication. So I would say that way too, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated in how we define them, who they are, um, right? How we're engaging with them. What are the outputs that we're looking for and all sorts of things. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, so I, I do I do think that there's been an evolution. I, I think that I, I'll kind of take a different angle because I don't want to repeat all the amazing points that that Nyanika just made, but I, I think that there's been sort of a, a wake up, right? There's there's an opportunity for HCPs who have a voice and have a point of view to potentially amplify 
and also engage other other experts, other HCPs, other peers. And I and I think that you have seen an evolution. You started to see people refine a skill set that didn't really exist before. And I think that there is, you know, there's there's a need for for both that sort of in-person engagement with with a traditional KOL. Because keep in mind, we think of, you know, if we're kind of unifying on a definition of KOL, which is a term that gets mm-hmm. it gets bandied about quite a bit, right? And a lot of people have a definition <laughs> of it. I know as a purist, <laughs> I think I think of a KOL traditionally as that subject matter expert in a particular therapeutic era or area or Maybe if we're talking about device, you know, a, a specific utility uh, or surgical, um, a, a surgical uh, approach, right? We're, we're talking about people that really are true subject matter experts that I think of them as those people when they stand at a podium, when they publish a paper, when they present a poster, people want to know what they have to say, right? And these are oftentimes those those experts that fall at the very top of the list of people that we at a minimum need to understand what they what they think or, or where their position is on a particular point. Um, and oftentimes we're engaging those people for for strategy, for consultancy to kind of help us shape you know, our plan to go to market with a, with a drug or a device, right? So I, I think that there there's an importance to kind of distinguish between that type of an expert and a person who is an expert, whether they be a subject matter expert or not in a particular therapeutic area on the modality of, of digital channels. Because you have, I can think of one particular, I won't mention the name, but I can think of an, an HCP who is an internist who has a wildly popular blog and also a, a Twitter channel. Uh, and this individual has something like 3.4 million wow. potential hits every time he throws something out there for people to discuss. And his channel is very interesting. He um, he oftentimes uh, is followed by not only other HCPs, but patients and press people kind of engage his channel because mm-hmm. there's so much great meaty discussion that happens there. Um, so this person isn't someone that I would consider a KOL in any particular therapeutic area, but this person really is an expert and has figured out how to it. really, really do a yeah. great job in engaging voices. Yeah. And so like, what he will do oftentimes is throw out a topic that is germane to internal medicine, something that an internist encounters and said, yeah. you know, hey, audience, what do you think of this? What should we be doing? And it's amazing the kind of engagement this doc gets on his respective channel. So I think that there is a true expertise that is developing and how to finesse and how to um, uh, really sort of uh, manage those digital opportunities to to be visible, right? Um, and they are different. You, you can actually have a DOL that's also a KOL. Yeah, that's a good point. And so that is a good segue into how do you ensure credibility? If you have people that are coming out and throwing stuff out, like you said, they could be credible. Um, but how do you ensure that credibility of the information? Well, I don't know that we necessarily have any control over the credibility, right? But we can assess credibility from from subject matter expertise. I think it all depends on what it is mm-hmm. we're looking to do with that information. And I think that whenever we go fishing for insights, whether it's about 
digital footprint or it's about you know the network that that an hcp operates in with for for research purposes or what their payer matrix looks like whenever we're going looking for any kind of an insight it's always really important to start with the end in mind we have to ask ourselves okay this is a thing I think I want to find out. I want to know, you know, how many followers my top KOLs have in their respective digital channels. Great. The important question to the next mm -hmm. ask yourself is what are you going to do with that information? My H1 colleagues probably get tired of me saying this, but it's a mantra I kind of mention all the time, which is that insights are great if they're only useful if we yeah. can do something to make a decision with if we can help inform our strategy if we can underpin our kpi initiatives with that insight so if we start our fishing expedition with the end in mind what we're going to do with it uh then i think that it really kind of powers the search and it prevents us from going down rabbit holes so when it comes to that whole digital piece. I think that we really need to understand why. I, I don't know about you, Nyanica, but I oftentimes have uh, teams come to me, medical teams say, hey, I need to understand, you know, what the what the digital landscape looks like for my KOL list. And a lot of times, I don't know if you are, but I'm often pressing them with, great, what do you what do you want to achieve with that? What part of your strategy does it help inform? And it and it challenges the clients that we have to kind of think that through. Oftentimes they're they're asked, but they don't necessarily understand why they've been asked to source this information out. But there are definitely useful things that can be done with those insights, right? We can utilize certain KOLs uh, that have a digital footprint to go on ahead and be, you know, sort of strategically placed as investigators because we know people talk about their work. But I'll bump it to Nyanika. What do you think about all yeah. of this? How do you how do you sort of think about that credibility? Yeah, question? I think when we talk credibility in like the digital space, to me, it's like one of the most complicated, um, right? One of the biggest questions that I think everyone's trying to solve for. Um, I personally also, when I'm working you know, with clients, not just, I mean, identifying DOLs is that one piece where I think, again, that's also still mm -hmm. something that people struggle with. How are we defining them? Who are they? Um, you know, again, quickly tying back to Chris's previous point, right? Like, are the true KOLs also your DOLs, right? If not, then, you know, are these DOLs, you know, worth even listening to, you know, what are they saying digitally? But when we talk credibility to me, I also kind of have a similar approach, Chris, right? Because I take my engineering background, I try to be very quantitative, right? Like what metrics, how are you defining credibility? And that goes back to what Chris said, right? Like what are you trying to do? Um, you know, what, what to you is credible in terms of your objective? Um, so yes, definitely for me, that's one of the biggest struggles is trying to define, um, I mean, noise again, going back to credibility, like what are they talking about? You know, how much of it is noise and how much of it is truly, you know, valuable from a digital footprint perspective, not just in terms of who's listening to them, who's actually following them, but also what are they putting out there? And these days there's just so much mm -hmm. that's out there. Even these DOLs sometimes like yes sometimes they're actually talking about publications etc but sometimes they're just feeling about football right <laughs> things like that so how do you watch right. through the noise to determine and sometimes it's very interesting when we look at it through different lenses very often we've seen when you look mm -hmm. at one metric right so say you're just looking at followers or how much they're tweeting someone might come up on top but then when you really look at what they're tweeting it's about not, and you do some sort of a content analysis or a share of voice, you're like, not really they're not, they're not, right. you know, coming up. Yeah. Enough. They're not actually talking about yeah. COVID, for example. Right. So 
to me, um, credibility in the digital space, again, I think remains one of the biggest and most complicated questions to answer. Um, but the best approach is A, you know, figure out what you're trying to do, define metrics, which will help you assess their credibility. And then the last point is, of course, and that's where we kind of try and help out, right, is actually helping you filter out the noise, uh, you know, and figure out mm -hmm. who is, who fits your definition of credible. Yeah, if I, could, if I could follow on to that too, I think that from there, you know, with an understanding, once you've aggregated those insights, you have an understanding of, of where then uh, certain HCPs with the digital footprint that, that hit certain metrics that are important, where then in your strategy mm -hmm. do they fit, right? You know, maybe there is there is a credible there's a credible DOL that isn't necessarily a subject matter in a particular therapeutic area, but you know they're engaging HCPs and and patients around you know important topics, right? You know that that this person is someone you want to get in front of and educate, for example, about a particular drug within a therapeutic class or even a concept. Uh, around sort of screening, that kind of thing. So I think I think you can find very credible people to connect with and build into your strategy uh, with that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a traditional key opinion leader. I call them podium shakers. You know, those people that really sort of teach us uh, from the front of the room. So that's awesome. This is a huge topic, and we really have barely scraped the surface. So we're actually going to be doing a two-part series on this, and we'll next time dive into a little more of that strategy and kind of how you do some things like how do you use digital opinion um, channels for like conference planning and things like how do you leverage those credible sources to get ready for big things. And I know we have a lot of conferences coming up early in the year, so we'll talk about that next time. Um, but we've loved having Chris and Ionica on the podcast and we look forward to part two. And thanks for listening everyone to Towards Health at H1 Podcast. Mm -hmm.